It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Sam Taff, in case I don't know you. Uh, I'm the RUF campus minister uh, at UK. As Will mentioned in Sunday school, this church has had a long history of loving and reaching the campus, and uh, I get to be a small part of that. And so if this is your first time uh, or second or third time and you haven't met uh, any of the pastors or elders, we would really love uh, the opportunity to meet you. Will and I will be in the back after the service. I uh, would love to get the chance to uh, learn your name and a little bit more about who you are. As Will also said, our uh, senior pastor, Robert's out of town, and so that means we're going to take a little break from the, the series he's been doing in John through Jesus' last moments with his disciples uh, before he goes to the cross. And this morning we're going to be in Acts 8. Uh, it's a passage I, I love for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's, it, it really is a reminder that we have a God who keeps his promises. Uh, as you read through the Bible, as you read through Jesus' last words to his disciples before his ascension, uh, God has a plan to reach the nations. If you were to turn to Acts 1, what, what does he say before he ascends? You are going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, and specifically in this past passage, you really see that being played out. I also love this passage, though, because it is. It's just a picture of the power of God's word, and it's a picture of ministry, of abiding in Jesus, as, as Robert talked about last week from John 15. Well, what do you have going on in this passage? You have two people reading the Bible together and being transformed by the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's read together Acts 8. Um, I'm going to start in verse 26. That's in page 917 on the Pew Bible. Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Lord, we thank you that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it can cut through 
our guilt and our shame. It can cut through our own self-deception. Lord, we pray this morning by your spirit that you would do just that. Lord, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, that you would encourage us in the gospel where we need to be encouraged. And Lord, ultimately, that you would drive us to the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten years ago, uh, in 2008, there was a girl who was about to start her freshman year at Harvard named Jordan Mong. And for as long as she could remember, Jordan had no interest in religion and didn't believe in God and had always described herself as an atheist and entered her time at Harvard uh, as a freshman uh, with those beliefs. And in an interview she did with Christianity Today uh, a few years ago, she talked about how her first semester of her freshman year, she was in a class where she met uh, a guy who was a Christian and they were having a class discussion and it became evident that they uh, disagreed on a lot of things. And uh, that began kind of a, a weeks and then a months long dialogue between them. And over the course uh, of that time, she not only found out that this guy wasn't crazy and not uneducated, but she actually began to be convinced of the truth claims of Christianity herself and became a Christian. And she wrote this. She talked about one of the, the biggest hurdles for herself in coming to trust Jesus. She said, the fact that I had failed to adhere to my own ethical standards filled me with deep regret. Yet I could do nothing to right these wrongs. The cross no longer seemed like a symbol, merely like a symbol of love, but like the answer to an incurable need. When I read the crucifixion scene in the book of John for the first time, I wept. Here is someone who recognized, uh, like if you're a believer, or if I think if, if, if you're not, even if you're honest with yourself here this morning, regardless of what you believe, we have an ethical standard that, that, that we are going by. That might be something we've explicitly read or maybe even written. It might be something that we just subconsciously believe. But whoever we are and wherever we are at, we've failed to uphold our own ethical standard. And, and the good news of the gospel, the good news of, of the cross is that Jesus actually did that perfectly. But, but, but I'll, I'll confess this. As I read this story and as I know, even as we just prayed, that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and can cut through our own self-deception. It can soften the hardest heart. It can open the eyes of the blind. I confess when I read stories like Jordan's, I'm surprised. If you were here last fall, Robert mentioned Nabil Qureshi. He was a devout Muslim who ended up becoming a Christian and writing of his journey from Islam to Christianity. I confess when I hear stories like that, I, I'm surprised. I went to seminary with a guy whose, whose college entrance essay on his application uh, to Dartmouth was why he thought Christianity was silly. And God had other plans for him in seminary. Now he's a pastor in rural Mississippi. And I'm surprised when I hear stories like that. And yet from cover to cover, when we read the Bible, we realize God is always doing things like that in Scripture and throughout history. Think of the Old Testament. People like Naaman. People like King Darius. 
Think about Jesus' own life, who he spent time with. It was always people that other people weren't spending time with. They were avoiding. Like Zacchaeus, a tax collector, least popular person in the town, guaranteed. Most hated job, absolutely. Prostitutes. During the festival season in Jerusalem in John 5, Jesus goes to hang out at the pool of the invalids, the invalids, literally people who were described by society as invalid. That's always been God's goal and always been his mission and always been a theme. That if the gospel is going to go and people are going to singing his praises from shore to shore, then there are going to be people that show up in God's kingdom that surprise us. It certainly surprised the apostles. It certainly surprised the early church. That, that was one of the struggles of the early church. You, you had this great explosive growth. You had this promise. I don't know about you, but when I read Acts 1 and, and Jesus is about to ascend and, he, and he's about to go back up to the Father and he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth when I read through Acts, when I think about the history of the church growing, I read back and I think, that, that, that's where it all started. That is so awesome. That must have been such an incredible rallying point for those apostles and disciples. But you know what? In reality, it certainly was that, but there is no doubt that when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, you're, you are going to witness to my name in Judea, Jesus did a lot of amazing things in Judea. He healed a lot of people. He spoke God's word to a lot of people. But you know what? He was also rejected and mocked by a lot of people in Judea. Next place. Where are you going to be my witnesses? Samaria. Was there a more hated group of people by the Jews than the Samaritans? No. It makes our sports rivalries, it makes our political global disputes look small when we think about two people groups that had hated each other for hundreds of years. The Jews viewed the Samaritans like sellouts, like half-breeds. The Samaritans didn't have much to say about the Jews either. They even built their own rival temple. And yet when Jesus leaves, he says, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to be my witnesses in these places, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And even in this chapter, we didn't read it earlier, but, but where is Philip preaching the gospel at the beginning of chapter 8? In Samaria. He's healing people. People are hearing the gospel preached and it says there was much joy in that city. And now God has brought Philip to a desert place to meet an Ethiopian. For a Jewish person, Ethiopia was the definition of the ends of the earth. You couldn't get further away, over 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And God brings him to this man, to this eunuch, a non-Jew from Africa, a eunuch, by definition, he was ceremonially unclean. And actually, according to Old Testament law, he, even by being with him, he could have made Philip ceremonially unclean. If you were going to ask Philip, Philip, who do you think God's got in store for you? As, as you when, when he was commissioned as a deacon in Acts 6. 
maybe in his best moment, he would have thought, gosh, you know, maybe a Samaritan. Maybe I'll meet someone from really far away. This would have been a really hard position for Philip to be in. It was certainly hard for a lot of the apostles. You think about some of the disputes in the early church. You think about Paul confronting Peter in Galatians 2. There were some cultural divides in the early church that had to be overcome. And that's true even today. When we think about who we would like, even our best days, who do we want to see this church reach in the city? What types of people do we want to have in our Bible studies, in our small groups? Who do we want to be sitting next to? Who would we love to see reach that's not being reached right now? When we pray for that, be prepared to, for God to answer that prayer in surprising ways. I, I think we have an idea of the guest list we would like in the kingdom. And God throughout scripture and throughout history is always bringing people that are not on the church's guest list. The Jews would not have thought on their own, they didn't come up with the idea to reach the Samaritans. Or to go to the ends of the earth and bring the gospel to someone like an Ethiopian eunuch. God is always in the business of bringing the uninvited in to his kingdom and pushing those people, pushing his people into the lives of the outsider. We can pray for that. I, I don't know about you, but, but, but even as, as Will was reading the explanation of the greeting of peace, it's no surprise. We live in a fractured world. When, when, when I think about that notion of, wow, gosh, all different types of people from different backgrounds, different political beliefs, maybe they do different, way different things on the weekends than I do. They do, their family looks way different than my family looks. Gosh, how awesome would that be? I'd love to be in community with those people. And yet, if we're honest, that's also really hard. And it's not happening as much as we'd like to see it happening. Why? Why was it hard for Peter? I don't know if you're familiar with that scene in Galatians 2, but they're all having this lunch. Jews and Gentiles eating together. And then kind of the Jewish higher-ups show up. And Peter's sitting with the Gentiles. And all of a sudden he's like, nope, I'm going to go sit over here with the Jewish people. I don't want to be seen eating with Gentiles even for Peter, who spent time with Jesus, this was a struggle. Why is it a struggle for us? I think it's probably for the same reason it was a struggle for Peter. Peter's identity was so much in his Jewishness that, that it was hard for him to be seen with people that were not Jewish, that did not abide by the same customs that he grew up in. Why is it hard for us to reach out across all the different divisions that exist in our neighborhoods, uh, in our workplace, in our church, in our city. I remember hearing a pastor ask this question at a missions conference a couple years ago. And I think that's because our identity is in something other than the gospel. It, if our identity is in something other than the gospel, if what controls our life, if the thing we value the most is something other than the gospel, it's going to be very easy to look down upon other people. If our identity, if what we value most is our work ethic and we're good and we're faithful, 
it's going to be really hard for us to relate to people that we don't view as having a great work ethic. And it'll be really easy for us to look down upon them. Maybe God's gifted you with great social skills. Maybe you have what people would call a dynamic personality. It can be really easy when people tell you that and commend you for that to look down on people who don't. To look down on people for whom being in a crowd, maybe even this size, is really hard. Maybe you love the fact that you are really intelligent and you read books by intelligent authors and the news outlets you read and listen to are also read and listened to by really intelligent people and it's hard for you to be around people that are not as sophisticated and intelligent. There are so many things. The list could go on and on and that is why the gospel is so beautiful and so offensive to us. It really is because what it says is before God we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses. Naturally we are enemies before God. The only, if you're a believer in this room this morning, the only reason you are a believer is because God's been gracious to you. Because he pursued you while you were an enemy, while you were dead. Not while you were sinking, but while you were actually dead in your trespasses and sin. And that truth really does, it really knocks out from underneath of us all the things we prop ourselves up with, doesn't it? Because according to the calculus of Christianity, we have no reason, we have no bargaining chips to look down upon other people because their story is the exact same story as ours. Before God, according to our own merit and goodness and motives and motivation and work ethic, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That changes the way not only we view other people, but we relate to other people. And that gospel truth throughout history, throughout scripture, is what has driven people into the lives of the uninvited, into the lives of the outsider. You see God doing that with Philip right here. Philip, go to a desert place. They're seeing great ministry success in Samaria. There was great joy in the city. People were being healed. People were hearing the gospel. That's in a hostile place. God says, Philip, I've got, I've got other plans. Go to a desert place. Go to Gaza. Oh, and go to that chariot right there and, and go ask him what, what he's reading about. Um, and now Philip is now reading the Bible with a man from Ethiopia who is a eunuch. You could not, you couldn't get someone more different from Philip than this Ethiopian eunuch. This is a man from 1,500 miles away who that, that trip had probably taken months for him to come to Jerusalem. He's probably successful, but he's very different culturally. He's ceremonially unclean. It would have been uncomfortable for someone of Philip's upbringing to be in the presence, to be, just, to be in the same chariot as this man. And yet, this is exactly who God has in store for Philip and for the church. One of the signs throughout the book of Acts, throughout Scripture, and throughout our lives, one of the ways we know God is at work is when he is pushing his people. When we see God's people not only reach out, but enter into community with the uninvited. To enter in community with 
those on the outside. We will know God's at work in us when we are relating to people and befriending people who the world says we have no business being friends with, who the world says we have no business being in the same church with or eating at the same table with. People like this eunuch. It'd be important for us to spend a little time looking at this eunuch. It's, this man's from Ethiopia. Uh, it says he's a eunuch, which means he's, he's been sexually altered. And for us, that seems, why would someone, and he, and he chose to do this. Um, this was not uncommon in Asian kingdoms, ancient Near East kingdoms. People would do this as a way to pledge their allegiance to that kingdom or to that ruler. This was a way of saying, you know what, I, I'm so committed to you that I'm going I'm to be, be willing to give up my ability to have a family so I can serve you. And it also meant they weren't a threat to the kingdom. They couldn't have any heirs. Uh, they wouldn't be distracted by relationships. They were sold out for serving this kingdom. And you know what? It's paid off for this eunuch. He's in charge of the treasury of, of this queen. Uh, he is riding in a chariot. That was not the case for most people. He's reading a scroll. He actually owned a scroll of scripture. Until the printing press, uh, there's like maybe one, maybe half a percent of the population of the world owned any copy of scripture, much less a scroll. He's also evidently been given, you know, months-long vacation time to go and worship at Jerusalem. This guy's high up and he's powerful. He's achieved a lot. He's sacrificed a lot and he's achieved a lot. But when he got to Jerusalem, he would have faced immediate roadblocks to worshiping. A, first, he's a Gentile. All right, that immediately puts him in the court of the Gentiles when he's worshiping at the temple of Jerusalem. Second, he's ceremonially unclean. Deuteronomy 23 talks about those who have undergone what a eunuch undergoes are ceremonially unclean. And, and so we don't know how long he was there. We don't know what his reaction was to that. But he knows that when he's entered into this temple, which has different layers to convey the holiness and the righteousness of God, that he falls way short, that he falls far short. He's got things about him that exclude him for worshiping in the way that he would want to worship. And that might be some of you this morning, that there might be things about you. Maybe it's not physical things about you, but though it may be. But it might be something in your past, something that you've done years ago that inhibits you from coming to God openly. Maybe things you've done or said in the past week uh, that you feel tremendous amounts of guilt about that a Christian would never say, that someone with any sort of morals would never say, and you've done it, and you've done it numerous times. Or maybe it's something that's happened to you. Or maybe it was something that was said about you that you feel like disqualifies you from communion with God and fellowship with other believers? This eunuch knows, knows what that is. And, it, and isn't it amazing? God's fingerprints are all over this. The main characters in this passage are not Philip 
and the Ethiopian eunuch, the main character who's weaving this whole thing together is God. You think about, you know, it, it wasn't Philip's idea to go to this random road in the desert where there probably aren't a whole lot of cars. Oh, and he didn't choose the time to go where there actually would be a chariot going from Gaza to Ethiopia. Oh, and gosh, what passage is this guy reading? Could God have teed it up any better for Philip? What does Philip do? What does God tell Philip to do? Rise and go towards the south to that road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. What's he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53, and they sit down. He says, do you know what you were reading? No, I can't understand this unless someone guides me. So what does Philip do? He runs up along this chariot. This is kind of a comical scene. This chariot's going. We don't get the impression that the chariot stopped. Philip's running over to the chariot. He kind of just hops in this chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? No. And they sit down, they read together. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch's saying, Who, who's this author writing about? Is he writing about himself or, or, or someone else? And what are we told? That Philip gets to tell him the good news about Jesus Christ. How is this good news? We don't know exactly what Philip told him, but we know what this passage conveys. We know what the scripture conveys to that eunuch, you know what you felt when you entered in that temple? In Jerusalem, when you entered in there, you were confronted with the fact that we have a God who is holy and he is perfect and he demands perfection to be in his presence. And you know what? That feeling that you felt that you fall far short of that and that there are things about you that disqualify you, that is also true. But the good news of the gospel is that this God took on flesh and was actually punished for the ways you have fallen short. And he was treated like a lamb led to the slaughter so that you will not be. And you know what? This guy had months longer in his journey. What, what do you think he did for the remaining months in this chariot ride to the middle of Africa? He probably went on to read more of Isaiah. And you know what? If, if he just read three chapters down, he would have come to our Old Testament reading, which says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the foreigner. Ethiopian would fall into that category. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Behold, I cannot have a family. Behold, I have no family. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Why? Because the God of the universe in whose presence you just stood and felt his holiness and your unworthiness has actually taken on the punishment for you. Each July, 
In December, I go to RUF staff training with other campus ministers from around the country. And my first two years while I was in RUF, uh, there was a guy in our prayer group, who's now, he's now a pastor of a church, but he was a campus minister in Nebraska. And he had a daughter with special needs and for as long as she lived, she actually passed away when she was nine years old, but her whole time uh, alive on this earth, uh, she could not speak. Uh, she could not dress herself. She could not take care of any of the bodily functions by herself. She had to be dressed, fed. Everything had to be done for her. And uh, this, this minister, he had, his name's Steve, he had, he had two other kids as well. And one day they were taking their kids to the park and, and he had two other boys. And they were playing and, and they took Amelia with them and she was in her wheelchair and, and couldn't enjoy the park, but they, they brought her to it. It was a beautiful day and... Uh, they were playing and Steve began to overhear some of the kids kind of like looking at the wheelchair and they saw diapers in there and all the kids that were playing were well past the age that you would wear diapers and they began kind of making jokes about it and like asking, you know, why, why would someone need those and whose are those? And Steve began to get pretty upset inside and was about to go over and wheel her away or say something and, and right before he did that, one of his sons piped up and said, those are my diapers. Those are mine. Don't worry about it. What did he do? He, that kid took the embarrassment, and we don't even, I, I, I doubt Amelia even knew she should be embarrassed or, or ashamed about that, but, but he took that and directed it toward himself, absorbed her shame and her embarrassment and took it on himself. This eunuch is confronted with the fact that he falls far short. He can't understand this passage. He can't understand what that could possibly mean for him, how there possibly could be good news for him. And yet, there is. We have a God who is led out to the slaughter for him. Not only that, that, that his guilt would be removed but as he keeps reading, he would find that, oh my gosh, there's actually good news specifically for me, for the foreigner, for the outsider. Someone like me can not only have their guilt erased by the blood of the lamb, but given a name that shall never be cut off, brought into a household that is an everlasting household, given a new name. You have things that you would fear people would name you. There, there are things that you've done. There's things about you. There's things about me that, that, that I would fear for people to label me, to call me. Be terrified for people to know what's true. We'd hate to be labeled things like a fraud, a phony. prideful, lazy, arrogant, a, a, an abuser, an abused. And in, in, and in the midst of our guilt and shame, it can be so easy for us to take that on as our name. And if that is you this morning, there is good news in this, that in the gospel you are actually given a new Name, a name better than sons and daughters. 
The invitation is to come. And for those of us in this room this morning, where maybe we know that about ourselves, but we're growing and we're believers by God's grace, then the invitation is to also come and to go. What is it that is preventing you from entering into the lives of people like this eunuch, a foreigner, a sexually altered man, someone across all cultural, political divides? It's hard. It can be hard. I think we can easily read this passage and be like, gosh, Philip was awesome. I can't believe he had the boldness, you know, to go to this desert and like chase after that chariot and jump in. Like it's a little bit rude, but it's pretty, you know, it's pretty bold. It's awesome. And I wish I had faith like that. But throughout this, as we said, God is doing this. The apostles were praying that God would fulfill his promises. And we see in this passage, he will fulfill his promises. As we go, yeah, can it be intimidating? Yes, it will be intimidating. Jesus says that actually as we live life in this world, we will face rejection and tribulation in this world. But ultimately and eternally, we have a name that is everlasting in a family in which we will never be cut off. I think we also fear going across those lines because we fear we are alone. And we are not. God will be with us. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. The invitation is to come. Whether you've known him for years, whether this morning all you've known is your guilt and your unworthiness, the invitation is the same, to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you did not look at us uh, in our guilt and our shame, you are not grossed out by us. But Lord, you took on flesh and dwelt among us. You are a light shining in the darkness. And so, Father, I pray. We pray that, that, that this good news that changed Philip's life, that changed this Ethiopian man's life, Lord, would continue to change lives in this church and in this city. Father, grant us the grace to come to you openly and honestly with all of our fears and our insecurity, Lord. Grant us the grace to go forth with this good news. This city, this town, and this country desperately need it. Father, would you equip us? Grant us boldness and trust in you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.